Hey there, and welcome to Slate's Trump Care Tracker, the show where we talk about the Republican Party's attempts to pass a tax cut bill disguised as a health care bill. My name is Jordan Weissman. I am Slate's chief economics correspondent. And I'm Jim Newell. I cover Congress for Slate. And yeah, yesterday was another big day in the march towards Trump care. Senate Republicans debuted the latest draft of their legislation. And it was it was kind of interesting. Um, but, you know, we're getting a little bit closer to the big do or die moment. Jim, was there anything about the bill that surprised you at all? No, not really. I think in the last podcast when we were previewing it, that was pretty much what came out. As I wrote in a piece yesterday, the big takeaway is it gives policy concessions to conservatives and then throws some money at moderates to cover up all the negative effects that those policy concessions have. I think that's right. You know, Andy Slavitt, the former Obama administration CMS official, was talking about this. It's just a bunch of slush funds at this point. They tacked on the Cruz Amendment, which we talked about, but just to review, it's this idea that uh, insurers will be allowed to sell whatever threadbare coverage they want, kind of cheapo health plans, as long as they offer something that also uh, complies with all of Obamacare's rules. And the problem with that, of course, is that the Obamacare compliant plans are going to become incredibly expensive because all the sick people are going to go and buy those. And so what do Republicans do? They just threw a $70 billion slush fund at that and said, oh, we'll figure out how to bring down insurance premiums. And that might sort of work, but it, it's a weird approach. It's just like bad policy papered over with a lot of money. Yeah, I think Andy Slapper was saying, too. You just have a lot of money that's at the discretion of the HHS secretary. Yeah, Tom Price. Like, there's so much here. It, it's really undetermined where a lot of this money is going to go. You know, they go into these innovation funds or um, high-risk pool funds or reinsurance funds. They're really just this money that is going to first states to figure out whatever they want to do. And Tom Price is figuring out what's going to happen with it. Yeah. And I always get a little bit nervous about those sorts of setups. And again, this comes out to my time writing about welfare reform. States have a history of sort of treating these pools of money as, again, slush funds to kind of paper over whatever problems they have in their state budgets. And if you don't have a a federal government that's really willing to keep a close eye on what they're doing and sort of crack the whip when they start diverting money towards questionable purposes, things can go wrong. And does anyone really have confidence that Tom Price is going to keep a close eye on what governors in Mississippi and Alabama are doing? If you combine that with the 1332 waivers, which basically, you know, allow states to waive out of a lot of regulations already. Yeah. You know, this is, this was already there before the Cruz Amendment, and it's still unclear how far states can go with this. Yes. I mean, you're just going to have states basically be able to come up with plans for anything. And they'll have all these funds. They will have, you know, if they do a 1332 waiver, they will have all of the refundable tax credit money that was available to them to do whatever they want with. They'll have the stabilization fund money to do whatever they want with. There's a lot of money in there for states to do whatever they want with, with little guardrails there. Yeah. At some point or another, yeah, I just have a feeling that we're going to see like a new football stadium somewhere, which is like, you know, Trump Care Stadium. A stadium built with the bodies of people who used to have Medicaid. <laughs> yeah. It's hard to even call a lot of this policy per se. It's because it's just eh, the states will figure it out. <laughs> and that's sort of where we're headed. At the same time, the Cruz Amendment was enough to win over the vote of Ted Cruz. It may or may not win over the vote of Mike Lee. Susan Collins looks like she's a hard no. Rand Paul is like very much a hard no now. He has said he will not vote on this motion to proceed, which is an essential part of the process. If you can't get past the motion to proceed, you can't vote on the bill. Just quickly about that uh, yeah. that Ted Cruz-Mike Lee split right there. Yeah. So this is a little interesting. And it shows you, you know, I mean, Ted Cruz is a real specimen here. So he and Mike Lee write this amendment that they want 
the amendment that is in the bill is not exactly the same. It's a version of it. Yeah. So apparently Ted Cruz negotiated that by himself and Mike Lee didn't really know about it. So Mike Lee had no idea what was in this bill. And then, you know, Ted Cruz is coming out and taking all this credit. And Mike Lee is like, I'm not sure if this is exactly what I want. <laughs> and I mean, just keep in mind, Mike Lee is Ted Cruz's only friend in the Senate. It's his only friend on the playground. And he just kicked sand in his face. Right now, we've got two senators who were hard nose on this. And then a bunch of you know, wafflers, people who aren't really being too clear. I mean, what? where do we stand now that we have the newest version of the bill, which I should add, gave very, very little to moderates. There are no changes, for instance, to the Medicaid cuts. They got pretty much nothing except for the extra money thrown at these slush funds. It, it seemed like they might come aboard anyway. Well, I mean, this to me was was pretty telling yesterday. You have this new bill that, you know, it, there are a couple more plus ups in funding there, you know, for the opioid funding and everything that, you know, some money thrown at moderates. But the direction of this new bill it gave the conservatives what they wanted. It did not give the moderates what they explicitly wanted. And yet you still have most of those moderates not running away from this. We had Collins and Paul immediately come out and say no, and then no one else said anything. So Mitch McConnell's bet that you can give the conservatives the policy and then work the moderate worked pretty well yesterday. It was a good day for him. You still have all these moderates who are holding out. We're talking about Shelley Moore Capito, Rob Portman, Dean Heller, Lisa Murkowski, John Hoven, they all were going into Mitch McConnell's office yesterday to try and find a way to work this. Is this just a courtesy thing, though? Are, are the moderates just sort of waiting for the CBO score to come out and then going to make a final decision or then just going to line up together and say no? Or do you really think they're trying to get to yes? If they wanted to, they could have come out yesterday. They could have come out a week ago, you know, four or five of them together. So you're not just one person killing this bill on your own. Yeah. And said, we think this approach is not working. We should just abandon this effort and do something with Democrats. Yeah. But they haven't done that yet. And I think that if they haven't done that, especially after, you know, they basically got mocked with this bill that was released yesterday. Yeah. I think they are trying to get to yes. I mean, it's still definitely possible, more than possible that after the CBO score comes out next week, they could do that exact thing that I just said. Like they could come out and be like, no, this is it. This is the end of the line. Portman, I think, is trying to get to yes. I think that Hoven is trying to get to yes. I think Capito is. Murkowski. Murkowski is kind of interesting to me because I just don't understand what her incentive is to go along with Senate leadership at this point. She won her last election on a write-in campaign, or at least won won in 2010 on a write-in campaign. Yeah, the second to last election. Yeah, second to last election. Like The party had abandoned her. She had lost the primary, and she managed to do the impossible. She won when she wasn't even on the damn ballot. Her family's name is just an institution in Alaska, and she is such a personal brand apart from the party. I don't understand why she would bother going along with this. She can keep setting her price higher and higher and maybe think she can get more and more extractions and then see where she's left at the end of the day and then make a decision. I mean, there is in this bill a carve out for her. Yeah. It requires 1% of the state stability money to go to states with 75% higher costs than the rest of the country than the national average. And that state is Alaska. It doesn't actually sound like much when you think, oh, it's just 1%. But I guess Alaska has, you know, 0.1% overall of the population. So it's actually a pretty disproportionate share. Yeah. What's unclear about that is whether they would get more money than they otherwise would under that. It's not 100% obvious that they will really benefit much from that compared to how the system would work anyway, because their health care costs are so high and how you'd have to work a stability fund. 
But yeah, it is worth noting that there have been multiple carve-outs for Alaska at this point. There was I wrote an article about something I called the Klondike kickback, which I got a lot of shit for because the Klondike is technically in Canada, whatever. Don't just whatever that, Jordan. That's actually unforgivable. <laughs> Sorry. They essentially exempted rural states and particularly Alaska from a system that was meant to sort of even out Medicaid funding between states that spend a lot currently and states that spend a little. And Alaska just was exempted from all of that. And now they've got this 1% rule that, that they could theoretically benefit from. So she's extracting stuff. It's just not clear how much that stuff matters compared to a long-term cut to Medicaid that is yeah. important to her state. And frankly, much less generous subsidies, which are also important to her state. Well, that's another interesting facet of this. The Washington Post report that Mitch McConnell had been telling the moderates that this lower Medicaid growth rate doesn't start until 2025, meaning it'll probably never happen. There'll be another president, another Congress in there. I don't know if anyone else has picked up on this. I couldn't get anyone to confirm that yesterday. But that is, you know, one, that's not a great thing to tell moderates like, oh, don't worry about taking this terrible vote that looks awful for you because, you know, we'll fix it later or whatever. But that's also conservatives' worst nightmare. I mean, they look at that growth rate and they're like, oh, it's in the back end of the calendar. So it's probably never going to happen. Yeah. It's also just such a crappy way to do policy. It's a shitty way to run a country. Let's be real. Like passing a potentially devastating cut to the biggest insurance program in the country and having that looming ahead, governors and such having to make long term decisions about their actions based on that and saying, we're not really intending for it to happen. It, it's, right. it's, it, this is a ghost cut. It's also pretty standard in Washington. That's true. You know, in Obamacare, they have the Cadillac tax in there and they push that to the back end and they, you know, were basically telling the unions, you know, don't worry, we'll never actually do this. And they still haven't done it yet. So That's true. So I want to come back to the CBO score because this is actually the thing that worried me most yesterday. And this gets wonky, but I think it's worth discussing because it's one of those moments where the norms of our American institutions seem to be slowly eroding or actually quickly eroding before our very eyes. So yesterday there were reports that the Senate Republicans don't think the Congressional Budget Office will be able to deliver a score on the Cruz Amendment quickly enough for their purposes because they're doing this on a very compressed timeline. And so instead, they want the Department of Health and Human Services, which is, of course, run by the Trump administration and Tom Price, to do its own score and use that for budget purposes. And of course, getting a, a score is essential because they're going through the reconciliation process and stuff has to save a certain amount of money. By tradition... You use the CBO for that. That That's just how it's been for, for basically forever. There have been maybe, I've talked to experts, there have been maybe a handful of times they've used a score other than what the CBO produced, but they've always been very minor instances. But again, that, that's only by tradition. And now it seems like they're talking about using a partisan source to do their budget estimates for this bill for the you know explicit purposes of trying to pass the bill, which seems like it just opens up a huge Pandora's box where you could, you know, in the future, you could be saying, okay, we're not even going to use HHS. We're going to use the Heritage Foundation to do our scores, or we're going to use Mick Mulvaney, who, you know, is like $2 trillion math error in his last budget. Mick Mulvaney can do his own score. OMB can do a score. And we use that for budgeting purposes. And this is kind of terrifying. Jim, you were in Congress yesterday and you said some people were actually confirming this, that this really is the plan right now. Yeah. Haley Bird with Independent Journal Review first report in the morning that yeah, because the Cruz Amendment is going to take so long, oh, well, we'll have to use HHS to score that part, the part that we knew CBO was going to destroy in its scoring of it and yeah. probably kill the bill with it. And then John Thune, who's the number three Senate Republican, someone asked him, is this going to happen? And he said, 
yeah, well, you know, it, we just don't know if CBO can get the Cruise Amendment done in time. So we'll have, you know, we'll have to look at another score. And it's like, time for what? Strange, it's a strange <laughs> reality. Like, well, if the CBO is going to take two weeks longer, you could also just wait two weeks. Yeah. But they'll have CBO score most of the bill. It's going to be hard to score the Cruise Amendment and its effects on the bill when HHS is not linking this into the rest of the thing. Yeah. It's going to be a little bizarre, but I, I guess they are, you know, allowed to do this at the discretion of the budget chairman. Yeah. It's very cynical, but I'm surprised it took them this long. I mean, <laughs> it's a partisan process. It's, you know, no hearings. I Just so many other norms have been crumbled throughout this. CBO has been just stomping on them left and right. I'm surprised it took them until the fourth CBO score to be like, oh, well, let's just cheat our way out of this. So I should probably just note here that Health and Human Services has done a score of this bill before. The Office of the Chief Actuary produced an estimate that said about 13 million people would lose insurance under the you know Better Care Reconciliation Act. And, and that was produced by the Office of the Chief Actuary, which is a fairly independent arm. I, I don't think Tom Price is marching down there and telling them how to you know carry the one or whatever. It is theoretically possible that they could produce a legitimate estimate of the effects of something like the Cruise Amendment. I think it, it's within their powers. They have the expertise to do it. That said, again, it, it just to me, what's so problematic here is that they're just opening the door to just doing whatever the hell you want in the future. Once you've gone to HHS, there's nothing stopping you from going to a think tank or going to just your congressional staff. And what surprises me about this also is that that applies to the Democrats as well. You know, Mitch McConnell has said he doesn't want to get rid of the filibuster in part because one day if Bernie Sanders is president, you know, then he'll be able to pass single payer with just 50 votes. And this kind of pushes things in that direction. It makes the reconciliation process just that much more flexible because, you know, President Sanders can go have the faculty of University of Massachusetts, which said that his economic plan would produce 5% growth, do his all of his budget estimates in the future. When the only thing that keeps our norms in place is sort of this prisoner's dilemma, who's going to break the rules first. Once you've done that, the rules are, are gone. It's, it's just shocking to me. McConnell is a big Senate institutionalist until the moment that becomes inconvenient for him. <laughs> Whether you can get away with this, this depends on the buy-in from the caucus. I remember early in the process, I think it was in the House, they were talking about getting some outside actuarial firm to look at the uh, MacArthur Amendment. But you have certain members who are like, I need to see a CBO score. Yeah. I think you have probably buying from the conference saying like, OK, in HHS, that's probably good enough for me. Yeah. So I think we've ranted long enough about budget scorekeeping, um, which brings us to our final segment. Is this shit really happening? Where Jim and I will each say whether or not we think Trump care is going to be passed into law and what we are willing to wager on that outcome. Jim, you go first. Like a true pundit, I guess, last time I bet my coffee table that it would not pass. <laughs> yes. Today, two days later, I am going to bet narrowly that it will pass. Okay. And I am not willing to bet very much. So <laughs> I will bet, mm, let's see what's around me. Oh, a big pen. I will bet one big pen that it passes. I don't know if that's a better prize than your broken Target coffee table or a worse prize because it can actually use the big pen. That's but, true. It is functional, very durable, big products. Yeah. I still think that this is going to fail. I just have so much trouble seeing Dean Heller voting for this. And his governor, who apparently has him on a leash, has not given any signals that he is feeling more warmly about this bill. 
So I still think no, but narrowly because we are in a fog at this point and there are no rules. So what am I willing to bet? I am willing to bet the remnants of my childhood action figures that I keep on my desk at work, um, which include an Arnold Schwarzenegger last action hero figurine, as well as some X-Men and a Captain Planet. So I'm betting my childhood on this, which now that I think about it is actually a bigger bet than I realized. In any event, uh, I think that's it for today's show. But wait, if you enjoy listening to Jordan Weissman talk, you should also listen to his Slate Money podcast. Oh, thank you for the plug, Jim. On Slate Money, we don't talk much about healthcare, but we do talk about economics and finance. So if you like hearing me walk out about this, uh, you can hear me and Felix Salmon walk out about money uh, on Saturday mornings. Again, that's the end of Trump Care Tracker for today. The producer on the show is June Thomas. If you have any questions, comments, thoughts, motions that you'd like to share, please email us at trumpcaretracker at slate.com. Again, trumpcaretracker at slate.com. And as always, if you like the show, please, please, please do leave a review in the iTunes store. It helps other people find us and start listening. Jim, as always, fun chatting with you. Yeah, good talking to you, Jordan. <laughs>